Oh, you are. Well, great. Uh, thank you, Todd. Um, <clears throat> for folks on my channel, this is uh, Ford Brewer, and I have uh, Todd Eldridge here with me. Dr. Eldridge uh, founded and runs a company called Cardio Risk. He's um, <clears throat> by training an epidemiologist, isn't that right? Todd? Cardiovascular epidemiology, yep. In fact, why don't you take us a little bit through your background, and then I'd like to, um, as we discussed, I'd like to talk a little bit about your new book. Uh oh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, so my, my background, uh, uh, I, I went through, uh, I, you know, Masters of Public Health and, uh, and studied epidemiology. And then uh, I, I actually worked for a, a, um, a vaccine company for 10 years, uh, which I very much enjoyed, pediatric vaccines, saving little kids' lives. It seemed, uh, seemed like uh, my kind of a deal. Uh, but, you know, after 10 years of that, um, uh, and our big accomplishment in that 10 years was to change healthcare policy from an oral polio vaccine to a, uh, injectable polio, which was the right decision. We saved uh, an additional eight lives per year. But uh, after winning that battle, I, I remember looking myself in the mirror and saying, well, that's a, that's a lot of education to save eight people. And I couldn't tell you who the eight people were, just knew that... Uh, that, that statistically we were we were saving eight people and so um, I really began looking and going to medical conferences and looking for a change and uh, I found it in the form of a gentleman by the name of Gene Bond who is uh, I think he's forgotten more than I ever learned I mean he's, he's just a brilliant guy his curriculum vitae is this thick uh, you know those are just the one sentence two sentence description of all of the research he's been involved in. It took me the better part of five years to read it all. You know, he's really a, a and I just consider myself very fortunate to have worked with him uh, for over 10 years and, uh, and, and really picking his brain and learning about the vasculature and, and about uh, imagery and, and particular IMT. But, uh, and so that led me to do, to doing what I'm doing now. Um, so Gene Bond was one of the pioneers in uh, CIMT technology. He uh, he was the the author, well, a co-author, of course, uh, but he wrote the the IMT protocols for many of the landmark epidemiological studies, including the atherosclerosis results in community studies, which was you know a series of publications, uh, a very large landmark epidemiological trial using IMT and tying it to cardiovascular and cerebrovascular diseases. And he wrote the uh, protocols for that. So he's a co-author on those, on those studies, of which there are many. Very good. So <clears throat> I would just let uh, the group know that uh, I've used Todd a, a good bit, his group. One of the reasons uh, I've used it has to do with um, some of the quality components. I did a video recently and we can, uh, we can, Put a note to it, a link to it down under the uh, the video. Todd's group looks at things like um, uh, the the ability to make sure and document that a CIMT that's been done by one tech is comparable to another tech and to another tech. Uh, Todd, you want to describe that a minute? Yeah, and actually, that's my direct expertise is uh, coefficients of variability. Uh, I created a methodology to uh, a double-blind performance-based certification. It works 
in any kind of uh, a test where reproducibility is important, but we obviously use it uh, in, in our uh, shop. And uh, to give you an idea of how good it is, this is in peer-reviewed published data, double-blind. Uh, so so uh, double-blind means that you, you have, have no way to cheat the system. Uh, in double-blind performance-based certifications, the variability, that's the difference between one sonographer, their first scan to the second scan. So if I'm scanning you, uh, Dr. Brewer, and I, uh, we would compare my first scan to my second scan of you on the same day. And of course, that's one uh, function of variability. But the other thing that's important is if I scan you and, and five other sonographers scan you, we should also be within a very tight uh, coefficient of variability. We, we don't want variability between uh, each of the sonographers. So we, uh, I've developed a metric uh, to do that and, and to monitor in any medical field, but we, it's particularly useful in IMT. And, and I can talk more about that later, but uh, just in the ERIC study, that's the atherosclerosis results and community study, the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy artery is 0.08 millimeters. That's uh, that's one pixel on a on a computer screen, or the thickness actually just under the thickness of the average uh, size of one hair on your head. And so, if you can't get very tight reproducibility, you really can't even sort out who's uh, sick and who's not. And this is uh, underscores one of the problems of this technology, carotid intima media thickness, in in the literature is. If you've got a, a laboratory that that hasn't figured out how to do that reproducibly, then then their their research is not going to be uh, as good or useful uh, as they think it is because uh, your variability is is the biggest uh, problem. So that's a that's a very good point. Actually, while you're speaking, I'm going in and looking to see. I have a couple of images on my. Uh, computer regarding um, <clears throat> reproducibility and um, some of the things we've been talking about. Well, I, I've got an image too for it if you want that I can show you visually. Okay. If you'd like, let, let me just share my screen. Uh, let, let me see how to, uh, how to do that. Let's see. There we go. <clears throat> Can you see that now? Uh, sure can. Okay, so this is uh, an image of a carotid artery. It's an old image, actually. And just for mm -hmm. listeners that may not be familiar with radiology, the, 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 this is a, we're looking at a carotid artery which sits in your neck right here. And uh, the orientation is the heart. Can you see my arrow? Uh, I can. I can okay, see so it very well. The heart is down on this right-hand side and the, the brain is up on this left-hand side. And we're just, this is about a, a, a three-inch uh, segment of the carotid in, in, in this person's neck. And, uh, and, and the anatomically, we label there's a common carotid there's a bifurcation, and the bifurcation, can you see my face on the screen as well? I can. Okay, so the, what happens is this tube, this pipe comes up 
up your neck here and it splits into two pieces, the, the internal and the external. And the internal feeds the brain with blood supply and oxygen and the external feeds the, the face with blood and oxygen. And right at the bifurcation, uh, where it splits, you see it, it gets a little bit wider. You can see how it's kind of about right here, it starts getting wider and it, it gets wider so that it can accommodate the split. Well, uh, right at that split, you, you, the, the, we, we tend to see little eddies. If you looked at the blood flow in live, what happens is you get these circular rotations uh, just like you would in a stream, in a, in a brook or a stream. As the water goes over a rock, it, it, uh, you get these little eddies, and the blood flow is no different. So it's just hemodynamics. Turbulence. Turbulence. Well, it, and sometimes it's not even turbulence, right? Like this patient has no plaque on this, on this image. But here's mm. what I want you to see. Even the untrained eye, so what, this bright white is called adventitia. That's the, the outer layer of the artery. It holds it all together. And the Could black, I interrupt? Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. Yeah, the black is where the blood flows. So that's what we mm -hmm. care about, right? Yep. And what we're measuring is this difference from this bright white interface to the black. That's, that's what IMT is. Mm. That's where all of the inflammation and the phagocytosis, all of these disease processes, that's where they take place. But I want Actually, to let, me, let, me, let me do interrupt just a second. Uh, I'm, I have shown several of these. Uh, the terminology that I often use is intima and media. Could you point that, those out? Yeah, so you can't differentiate between intima and media. Mm -hmm. This layer called the intima media, it's actually two layers, a, a thin layer of uh, a, a tunica that is that, that, that two, <clears throat> two surfaces lay together and the, the media is uh, smooth muscle tissue. Okay. And, and, and it's visualized here from this bright white line. See this black the yeah. interface between this bright white and the, you see this black line all the way along here, you can see it. And then you right. can also see where the, the slightly gray line and the, and the stark black of the lumen. That would be the lumen interface, the lumen intima. So the <clears throat> intima would be on this side facing the lumen and the media would be on this side facing the adventitia. So, but what I want you to pay attention to is the thickness. Look how thin it is here versus how thick it is down here. Do you see that? Even the untrained eye can see that it's almost twice or maybe even three times as thick down here as it is here. And so here's what I want to point out. We don't have to make it all your listeners experts, but a laboratory that doesn't have prescribed protocols to ferret out and, and to consistently measure in the same place doesn't have a chance at getting reproducibility because if I start my measurement here and, and look at this segment, I'm going to get one measurement. If I, if I start it here and, and do a one centimeter segment, I'm going to get a completely different, almost a threefold increase in the amount of inflammation I'm measuring. So the context of that statement is to, is to just absorb a little bit the, the challenge of doing a, an effective IMT exam that we really have to have protocols in place that define anatomically where are we going to start and end our measurements. And absent that, I, I could just tell you, you're going to be all over the board. And so the ability to use this uh, functionally to monitor efficacy of a treatment or to even see who's sick and who's not is, is really uh, 
significantly dissipated. It, it, it's it's uh, <clears throat> attenuated. You, you just you just can't do it. And so what what uh, my expertise is is to identify how first of all how can we do this? I with Gene's help I got the uh, you know kind of how to find the right spot anatomically. He's a pathologist, and uh, armed with that information, then we use my expertise, which is coefficients of variability, to measure. Uh, do you and I, Dr. Brewer, do we get the same measurement when we measure the same patient? And uh, you would think that that would be stupid simple. It's actually extremely complicated. It's the most complicated thing that we teach in our shop. And, uh, but it also is what separates us, we think, from anybody else out on the market. Actually, uh, a couple of points. Number one, I'm really glad you got started getting into this detail uh, early, Todd. We've got a lot of folks on the, um, uh, in the viewer community, I, I, a lot of docs. I've had many docs uh, start calling me, uh, especially recently, starting to ask about getting training in this area. Uh, many of them, as you may know, you know uh, Brad Bale and Amy their sure. name very well. You've worked with them a lot. I've referred some to, to them. Um, and, um, we've got other people that know a lot of this, uh, the details that would really surprise you far more than uh, most patients. And as you and I both know, far more than most docs know about this technology. That what you, one of the things you raise is actually one of the key reasons why the technology has not been that popular in terms of, uh, routine standards of medicine. Not a lot of docs use CIMT. And again, this is one of the reasons. It's very difficult to make sure that you've got a reproducible uh, result. There, th this is a really good point, uh, uh, Dr. Brewer. And I, I also have, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go back to a, a different slide. So uh, this is a slide that shows some plaque. And the context of this is, is within the framework of, of this discussion of reproducibility. The other problem you find in literature when you, when you really dig into methodology is um, from a technical perspective, uh, the word IMT is intima media thickness. So it's literally the thickness of the arterial wall, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, from a technical standpoint, this is IMT, measuring where this arrow is, right? Just this thin layer. But so is this. What You can see that that's a plaque. I mean, that's, right. a, that's an echolucent plaque. That's a soft plaque. That's a, what I would call a widowmaker. If this thing pops, that's just a big pimple sitting in, in the inside of this person's neck. And if it ruptures, they're, they're very likely going to have an event. We could talk about that later. But, but in the literature, you have to be really careful when you're reading because some literature would call this IMT, which it is. That is an accurate statement. This is also intima media thickness. This is intima media thickness. But much of the literature, I think appropriately, differentiates the inflammatory marker of IMT, this down here, from a plaque measurement, which is this IMT. Both are intima media thickness. I want to be clear on that. But yeah. in the literature, we have to know what are we talking about. Are we talking about a lesion, a focal lesion? Because you can see the untrained eye can easily make out this this big, thick, whitehead pimple sitting four inches from this person's brain, 
and they can see very clearly the difference. So in literature, you have to be very clear and, and really dig into that methodology to make sure that the authors clearly understand and differentiate between a plaque measurement IMT and a inflammatory or a, you know just a kind of a normal IMT. Both have data, Dr. Brewer. So, so when we talk about inflammation, the process of phagocytosis, we're normally talking, and I say normally because the literature is all over the board on this and it contributes to confounding information. But when we talk about common carotid IMT, which is where all of the epidemiological trials measure, we're looking generally at a one centimeter uh, uh, in length and, and we're in the distal one centimeter and we're generally measuring that absent a plaque. That's important to know because if we found a plaque in the common carotid, we would a lot of literature would ignore that deliberately to say mm, that's going to confound our data because you can appreciate measuring plaque is much more difficult uh, to get reproducible. So we normally leave that out in much of the literature. If you don't understand that though, you can really get out over your skis in this stuff. In fact, I'm aware of two. Uh, meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is where you look at 27 to 30, you know, other studies on IMT and they tried to make sense of it. Well, when you have 27 studies and each of them with a different protocol, some measuring plaques, some not, in, in two of the studies I'm talking about, they measured them in kids. Yeah. You're not going to get information that is informative. You certainly are not going to be able to say that IMT is predictive because, you, you know, the, the number one rule in all research is garbage in, garbage out. And so when you mix and match all of these different methodologies, you're going to get, you don't know what you're looking at, and there's no amount of biostatistics that can save that study. So my, my word of caution to your listeners, whether they're physicians or patients, is be very aware, you know, please don't mistake your Google search prowess with a, with a degree. Uh, you have to know what you don't know, and you always have to be cautious when you're reading these studies to make sure you really understand what you're looking at. And I would tell you, uh, Dr. Brewer, we've talked about this before, but it doesn't matter if you're a medical doctor or, or a patient, I see gross errors in the interpretation of this data. It's easily misunderstood. That also contributes to why it's not routinely used across the board. Having said that, I do wanna show just, if I could, uh, one, a couple of studies that, because we're talking about reproducibility, I hope this is not taking us uh, too far off track. This is a study, this is perhaps the best study I've ever seen in any genre of medicine in terms of efficacy of, of, of a methodology. Uh, Dr. Brewer, what they did here is they took uh, 10,000 patients and followed them for 10 years. Now that's a big study, that's a 100,000 man year study. That's a big study. They don't come much larger than that. And they took a group of patients that had no risk factors. So if they were, if they had, if, if they had uh, high blood pressure, you're out of the study. You can't be in it. If you had high cholesterol, you're out of the study. If you had low HDL cholesterol, you're out of the study, right? They, so they deliberately chose a cohort or a group of people that had no risk factors and they were asymptomatic. And the reason that they did that is because they knew that they were going to have these people sign waivers to say, we're not going to, we're not going to receive treatment. I agree. If I was in the study, I had to agree that I would not be treated for the 10 years of the study. Well, you don't want to have people who have disease agreeing to that for obvious reasons. 
But back in the 1990s, we really didn't know the efficacy of IMT. So we were just, let's watch and see. The one, uh, I'm not sure it was an error or it might have been deliberate. The one risk factor that they left in is they had about 30% uh, of these people that were smokers. And as mm -hmm. we know, smoking is a huge risk factor. Right. Huge red flag. So off they went and they started measuring these people. Well, 21% went on to have a heart attack or stroke. Oops. Uh, and as they went and looked at the data, IMT caught 98.6% of those heart attacks and strokes before they happened. Maybe you know, but I have never heard of another technology in any genre of, uh, of medicine, Dr. Brewer, that has a better uh, catch rate than that. Home pregnancy tests, just for reference, in the first trimester catch 97%. You'd expect those to be pretty darn predictive, right? But 98.6%, I want your listeners to understand how significant that is. You will be hard pressed. I don't care if you're looking at cancer or any other medical condition. And by the way, I would ask you, if you find one that is better than 98.6, please email me at todd at cardiorisk.us because I want to see it. Uh, this is unprecedented in medicine. It's really, really good. And, and this isn't to say that it's a perfect study. All studies have their weaknesses. This is not without exception. But that is really, really good data. Let me show you one other data point. This is the landmark atherosclerosis results and community study. This was the, the landmark study that showed the, co the correlation between IMT and, uh, and cardiovascular or cerebrovascular risk. And then this I make just a, a quick interruption. Yeah. So uh, I've I've covered uh, both of these studies in other videos, but oh, okay. not the way you're covering them. Uh, I just want to remind my best, uh, viewers that the first one that we looked at was Cafe de, uh, de Caves or Ca Cafe's Cave. It's a very it's a landmark study in this area, and I'm really glad you covered it. This one's called Eric. It also had a lot to do with. Um, um, diet and, and cardiovascular risk. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah, so, so uh, what I just want the, your listeners to see, and whether they're physicians or patients doesn't really matter, the standard of care in America is a cholesterol test, and it's problematic. <laughs> and the reason it's problematic is not always understood. At the time that I stick a needle in your arm and, and draw blood, what I'm really looking for is the concentration of a pathogen per unit of blood. So in this case, a deciliter of blood. So what, we, what we're measuring when we do a cholesterol test is we, we, we stick a needle in, we draw some blood out, we say, oh, what's the concentration, how many uh, milliliters of, of, uh, of, of cholesterol are in a deciliter of blood? And we, and we crank it out as a score. And, and what we're hypothesizing is that the higher that concentration, the more likely one of those particles is to, to penetrate into the wall of the artery. But let's be clear, at the time that we draw it out of your arm, not one drop of it has hurt you. By, by definition, it's floating around your circulatory. And in order to hurt you, it has to get inside of that wall of the artery and, and get trapped there. And then it starts this whole process called phagocytosis, which is very similar to when you get an acne lesion on your face when you're a teenager. Well, we can talk about that later, but so, so let, that's why there's so much difference. But the standard of care in America is a cholesterol test. And it catches, in another study we're not going to show here, caught, it catches about 18% of the women, 25% of the men. 
it misses three times as many as it catches, and that's why. And so let me just show you, this is a very high, uh, Dr. Brewer, you would probably never let your patients get to 160 milligrams per deciliter of blood, right? That's, that's really high. We shoot for below 100 if you're diabetic, below 130, I think are the current standards. So 160, I want to impress upon you, is way too high. Notwithstanding that, the hazard risk ratio, that's essentially how much risk, how much increased risk do you have by this condition? And what they're saying is, if you have cholesterol level above 160 milligrams per deciliter, you are twice as likely to have an event in your lifetime. Now, that's not unimportant. We can't ignore that. We have to do cholesterol testing because it's still responsible for half the disease. However, it doubles the risk slightly less than that in men. If we look at, at the good cholesterol, quote unquote, I hate, that makes me cringe to say that, but, uh, but, but HDL has been referred to as the good cholesterol. If you're below 35 milligrams per deciliter and you're a woman, you have a, just over a threefold increase uh, in risk by having too low of cholesterol or uh, in men, it's a little bit lower. Now, here's what I want you to see. The IMT test, women, if you exceeded one millimeter, which by the way is not that thick, I mean it is thick, you have a 19-fold increase in risk. Do you see the difference? And, and to me, the difference is as simple as we're taking a picture of it and measuring it. There's no, there's no extrapolation. There's no uh, do you or don't you have it. Will this hurt you or not? Inflammation is the cause of this disease. Inflammation predicts risk of plaque. Plaque predicts risk of events. So loosely you could say then that, risk, that inflammation loosely correlates with uh, events, but if we had added plaque to this, we would see off the chart numbers. In the CAFE's cave, we found that 40% uh, of those with even the smallest non-hemodynamic plaques went on to have events in 10 years. So this is really good data if, if it's conducted by a laboratory that knows what they're doing and that is, has the coefficients, the, 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 the quality metrics to maintain good coefficients of variability. So hopefully that, that was a lot of verbiage, uh, Dr. Burr, but hopefully we brought the science together so they can see it in context, why it matters. And uh, Actually, um, yes, I think you did a great job. Let me just ask you this, Todd. You know that image that uh, Brad and Amy used that shows um, on the Cafe's Cave group where it's 80% if you have occlusion of the uh, flow? Yes, that's... Uh, if you if you don't have that, I probably do. Yeah, um, but feel free to. I, I can stop sharing, and I, I think I do have the slide. Let me uh, give me just a second, and and I've got it right here. Well, I while know. you're looking for it, I will I will help describe what makes the point behind that. So again, we're talking about um, a deeper, more effective way of screening for heart attack and stroke risk. And we're talking about a simple ultrasound of the carotid artery here. No radiation. And Todd, you and I can get into that one a little bit uh, later if we get some time on this video. Maybe we'll have to do another one. But people say, and docs will say, well, I already have, I mean, we have ultrasound of the carotid artery. We, do, we used to do that all the time. And if it's positive, you do surgery. If it's uh, not, then you don't. Well, 
that's, uh, that's not right. They're not talking about CIMT, which is showing a much more um, subtle, it's showing whether plaque is there or not. Now, if somebody has a, a positive that obstructs the flow, they're gonna have an 80% probability of having an event if they're not treated over the next 10 years. That's true, and I actually, now that you said that, I'm, I'm showing the wrong slide. <laughs> well, actually, okay. this, this, this slide's fine. not unimportant. Uh, you know, what we're seeing here, this is not the slide you were thinking about. I, I now realize what you're looking for. But the problem with the, the standard, uh, it's called a duplex exam. It's a carotid ultrasound that I would say the vast majority of the medical community is using. Is And I'm going to use my hand again. What yeah. it's looking for is the amount of blood flow through the hole. Yeah. We talked about the, the, the water. And think about a brook or a stream. If you have a great big rock in it, that water starts it goes much faster over the rock. It escalates, it changes the velocity because the hemodynamics of the flow of the water are changed by the rock in the stream. Same thing in the arteries. So what the duplex exam does, which is the, the one that is, you'll see lifeline screening and other, it, it's really the workhorse in cardiology. They're looking for the velocity changes owing to a large plaque. But here's the catch because I'm looking through the hole, you have to be 50% or more blocked before the math, the, the math that we use is very sophisticated. The math doesn't even work below 50% blockage. So what they do is they put their thumb up and say, well, I, I think you're about 20% blocked. That is a guess because the math simply doesn't support it. Now over 50%, it's, it's actually quite, uh, quite useful. And, and, and here's what I want you to understand. You have to be 70%. Cardiologists can't just go around cracking people's chests open for the fun of it. That would be completely unethical. Nor can they run uh, invasive catheterizations on people just for the fun of it. So the, the criteria to meet the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm, so that the, the, the benefits of a procedure outweigh the risk, is 70%. You have to have this hole 70% blocked before uh, before they can ethically do something invasively. These are surgeons. So it's not their fault. They're, they're, they are doing what they're trained to do and they're doing it ethically and the ethics require them to not do something if you're less than 70%. Here's the problem with that. 86% of the heart attacks and strokes are in people that had less than 70% blockage. What that means is up until minutes before they had their heart attack or stroke, they didn't have blockage. No, they so, had no clue. So to sit around and wait till your cardiologist can treat you, you may as well take a revolver and spin the dial and pull the trigger. It, it, it's a suicide pack, and there, it's craziness to sit around and wait till that tube gets filled seventy percent. It's just nuts. And what we do with IMT, instead of looking at the middle, we also look at the middle, by the way, but we're much more interested in the wall of the artery right here, right? Wow. But we can see how do you have inflammation? If you do, that's going to, if left untreated, inflammation will always grow a plaque 100% of the time, over time, absent an intervention. And plaque, left untreated, in a very high percentage of the time, plaque is responsible for the atherosclerosis caused events. It's the ruptured plaque and the subsequent chain of events that happen from a ruptured after a ruptured plaque 
that cause the heart attack or stroke. So we don't have to wait around to be 70% closed for heaven's sakes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you, took a, you took a major chunk uh, into what I was, where I was going. I appreciate that. Okay, yeah, I'll, I, I know the I'll, slide you want. I don't think it's in this slide deck. That's okay. I'll just see if I can cover it verbally. So uh, people would say, well, we did, a, we did a carotid ultrasound. We looked to see whether there was a, a obstruction or not and whether we need to do surgery. That's not what we're talking about. Again, we're talking about a more subtle look. And, and Todd just gave us a technical explanation. What you find and what, you, what they showed with the CAFE's cave study was people that had significant plaque had a 40% risk, over 40% risk of having an event within 10 years. So again, major risk that we can pick up and warn our patients of. And guess who's a poster boy for that? I was one of those folks with very few risk factors back when I was age 57. I decided to get one of these. And if you just look at uh, arterial age alone, I had 72 year old arteries. Uh, I do prevention for a living. I was one of those docs that you refer to in your book that treats risk factors rather than treating disease. And um, you may, may wanna comment on what that means. Yeah, well, and you're you're probably better uh, suited to uh, to uh, I'm, I'm I was trying okay, to bring up this. I'll go ahead and finish that while you're looking yeah, for that image. I, I got uh, it here. Yeah. In your book, you referred to most docs treat risk factors rather than disease. And six, ten years ago, I was one of those docs doing that as well. And what that meant was you you take those people that have risk factor, like um, according to the Framingham study, and you tell them well, you've got risk factors and you need to lose weight. Well, what we saw with the CAFE's CAVE study was there is a huge chunk of people, and I don't remember what portion of it, I think maybe, was it 40%? It well, I think this is the numbers that you're looking for, the progression number and percentage. It's, you know, 81 to 87% of those that had hemodynamic disturbances. So if you're in a class four, that was the the class four was the group of patients in Cafe's Cave that had a uh, plaque large enough to cause this velocity change, right? And, and right. if you were in that group, 81% of those, or 87%, depending on how you're calculating the data, went on to have event in that 10-year window. I mean, that's, that's right. horrid. Uh, that is. That's, uh, again, uh, again, we'll talk later about the risk of uh, coronary uh, calcium scores. There is risk, and I hope we get a chance to talk about it, but it, we're talking about one in a thousand over a lifetime. This is talking about eight in 10 over a 10-year period. The thing, most, uh, I think a lot of radiologists, a lot of, or at least primary care docs would say, well, we would have picked those people up on the B mode on the regular. Whether they would have or not, you clearly would not have picked up that third group. And that third group is the group that I fell into, a group that, of people. That's with, this group right here. No, no hemodynamic disturbances, just a little, what, what people call a little plaque. And, and look at that number, over a 40% probability of having a cardiovascular event within 10 years. So again, there's a ton of people walking around out there with plaque uh, in their arteries that just don't know it. As you've pointed out, and most, uh, a lot of people know this, 
and what up to half of, of folks that have a problem like that first find out about it by dying and that's and that's just not acceptable even though our current medical system functions that way you know I, I'm one of those uh, Ford that that uh, look we all got to die right and and if I got to die I, I I agree with some people that if I got to die uh, heart attack's not a bad way to go but I tell you what really scares me is it's a 50-50 flip of the coin, whether it's a heart attack or stroke. And uh, we're much better at keeping people alive. What scares me to death is having my kids change my diapers uh, you know, be, because of the stroke. And, and there is one other point, if we could, uh, about this CAFE's cave study that I think is uh, intriguing. In the, in the group one, that was the, the, the majority of the patients, only one in 800 in the normal artery group went on to have an event in that 10 year window. So when you get a good clean IMT, you, you can, it's a, you know, you can, you can breathe deep and, and feel that pretty confident you're in good shape and uh, you know, just keep staying the course. Uh, right. and, and God forbid that you're in the, in the class that uh, Dr. Brewer is in that, that, you know, where you, you had a plaque and you needed to address it. Well uh, then, then it's wonderful news to be able to know about it in time to treat it medically with, with lifestyle and medications instead of surgically, uh, which is a hit or miss. Like, like most of my patients, I found out I have insulin resistance. So again, no, it's not the LDL. It's the increased blood sugar, increased insulin that's causing cracks in that uh, intima space and allowing that LDL in there to cause, uh, cause yeah. inflammation. Hey, you want to talk about your book a little bit? Oh, uh, you're you're kind. Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I actually got kind of tricked into reading uh, or to writing this book, <laughs> but uh, I I uh, it's it's a it's a work of love. Uh, I uh, I have so many friends like you, uh, Ford, that are that are primary care physicians, and uh, those of you that are unfamiliar with their lives, uh, it's heart wrenching to me. It it literally just it's like pulling my heart out. These guys are working 14, 16 hour days. Uh, the system that is imposed on them every year, CMS comes out. CMS is the, the guys that set the Medicare fees drops, uh, payments about 30%, no rhyme or reason just because we can. And so if I'm a primary care doctor and I take Medicare, I just got a 30% cut in pay. And they've done that. How many years, I mean, year over year over year, there's a reduction. Uh, and so on top of that, they add regulations that require these guys to enter all kinds of paperwork they didn't have to do before. Used to be you'd have a paper file, you'd get some lab results, you'd stick them in the paper file, put them on the shelf, and off you go, right? Or to interrupt me any, anywhere that, that I'm off on this. And I'm watching my friends, these are my good friends, uh, get so frustrated and and it got to the point where where to to make a living and i'm not talking about uh, some some people patients think that doctors make a lot of money uh listen when you've spent 16 years of your life in school and the average primary care doctor was making 120 grand there are engine there are software engineers with four years of education making a lot more than that and yeah. so they're struggling to eke out a living. They're spending 18-hour days. They're logging all of the stuff in their electronic medical records. Most of the time, they're logging four or five times because that's what the regulations require. My heart just 
couldn't take it anymore. Uh, these guys are, they really should be the highest paid of the physicians because they're preventionists as opposed to interventionalists. And I was seeing this happen over and over again. They had to see 30 to 50 patients a day just to, just to pay their bills. And, uh, and, and then on top of that, you know, if I'm the patient in a, in a setting like that and I'm seeing, uh, I get five minutes of time with my doctor, I'm not very happy about it either. And, and so I blank, my finger's pointing at him. So their job satisfaction went down because instead of being able to spend time with us and, and really get underneath and find out what was going on, they got to move and get the next patient. So th yeah. 30 to 50 patients a day is just insane. And that's what they're forced to do to make a living. So I'd had enough. That's, that's the reason why, uh, along with some personal stories, but this is a work of love. I wrote to my friends, uh, the doctors, this, this, this book was written to doctors and it, it's really written to you for to, to my buddies who I love and admire and I hold them in the very highest esteem. And what I was trying to say is it doesn't have to be like this. You, you don't have to take a vow of poverty to practice medicine. There are other ways. And, and so I wrote a book, just three steps, three things that they could change in the average practice uh, that, that would, that would save lives it would generate some some profit for their practice, and of course, uh, make them feel better about the the important work that they do. And and so that along the way, what we found out is a lot of consumers liked the book okay too, and uh, got a lot of out of it. I don't spend one minute trying to t tell how to fix it. That's that's guys like you, Doctor Brewer, that that should write that book, and Amy and Brad that wrote a wonderful book. Uh, I don't spend any time addressing how to treat the disease. But I, I do know this. I know how to identify the disease. And, uh, and once we identify it, guys like Dr. Brewer can fix it. it it's, we've known how to treat it for 40 years. We just grossly underdiagnosed. So that's it. I mean, that's the, that was the motivation. It's a work of love. I hope that the, the physicians, especially that read this, will feel uh, of my admiration for them and what they do. Uh, it's, uh, and if they don't, I can't help that. It, it's a complete work of love. You bring up a, uh, this brings up a good point. And let me speak to it for just a minute, if you don't mind. Uh, you brought up the issue of income for docs and especially people on, um, on YouTube and docs that you see on YouTube, get a little bit of anaphylaxis because so many of the docs <laughs> that you, uh, you know, get very allergic, get a very negative reaction because the patient's focus is, I'm the patient, it's my health that I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the doctor's finances. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the medical systems uh, in the country have been set up like labs, uh, internal to, um, uh, uh, to the doc's office. The doc makes money off labs. The doc makes money off of MRI. In a lot of cases, doc, the docs make money off of, um, of uh, CIMT, and so then the patient automatically starts doubting whether or not the doc's thinking about his or her finances rather than, than the patient's health. So um, <clears throat> I've been in both type of arrangements. Currently, uh, my arrangement for the viewers is that when I send the patient to Todd, the patient pays directly. I don't, I don't make any money out of that. Um, now here's, here's a, a point about, about this same topic. Todd, you wrote this book for doctors, and one of the reasons, actually, you, ha you had three different, um, 
what's the term you use? Scripts. Oh, Great. right. <laughs> How to introduce this concept to a, to a patient so they can understand it. Now, to me, that's so frustrating, and it just shows a little bit about how you're sort of like the Maytag repairman. What I mean by that is you're the, the, the loneliest guy in town. Here we've got a technology, and uh, people are familiar with coronary uh, calcium scores. People are familiar with... Um, the neck ultrasound we talked about a few minutes ago, they're, fam they're familiar with Framingham and looking at risk factors, but they're not familiar with looking at CIMT. Um, docs, as you mentioned, are too busy sometimes to learn some of these subtleties, learn something like this, which has been recommended by the American Heart Association. So patients get frustrated. They'll get one of these tests, they take it back to the doc, and the doc doesn't know anything about it. So that's, you, see, you may see where I'm going, Todd. I'm going to this question of direct-to-consumer. And uh, you and I had some discussion about that yesterday. One of the things that uh, John has contributed, John Lorscheider has contributed to this uh, channel is that he's a, a long-time direct-to-consumer um, patient. He's taken, he actually, he knows more about some of the things we're talking about than most docs, and I mean most Bale Dunin trained docs. John <laughs> is a sharp guy. He's pretty, pretty sharp. He kept me on my toes. I think yeah. I scanned John myself. I think, yeah. I think once I knew his knowledge base, I thought I, I want to take this one. <laughs> so one of the things that we're looking to do is make, uh, make these types of uh, lab tests, screening tests, and this is the screening test. It's not calcium score. It's not any... It, Risk factor is helpful, but this is the test. Now, the problem is, uh, as a result of viewing this video, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of comments. How do I find that? Where do I go? How much does it cost? Um, you want to wade into some of that challenge? To me, that is right now the biggest challenge for patients out there. Yes, there's a problem with lack of knowledge. Yes, there's a problem with docs not knowing about it. But we can get over that. The bigger problem is how to access it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, great question. So, absent these events that we've, we've talked about and played played with, uh, we do what what Dr. Brewer is talking about is Cardi Risk has done some direct to consumer events that have been quite successful, where we've come to a community and said, let's let's come and, and set up a tent and, and be there for five or six days and make sure that the, that those in the community that want the test can get it. And we're, I think we're still looking at doing those, but, but we're a national company. We've, uh, I, I can't remember last time I checked, we've trained somewhere around 2,400 people to do the test uh, all around the world. And so uh, if you're a physician, I would tell you, first of all, we'll come to any doctor's office. Actually, if you're a patient, if your doctor, if you're not going to Dr. Brewer and you're, you're just going to your primary care doctor, if you want to tell them about this, uh, tell them about this technology or show them the video, we will come to any doctor's office. The, the economics are such that we have to aggregate patients or it's not cost effective. You can appreciate if I got to put somebody on a plane and haul equipment out, we, we, ha we can't, it's a, a $200 test. There's just no way to make that economically feasible. So, all we're looking for ever is to aggregate a, a, at least 15 patients. And obviously we would rather do more in a day because then, 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 it's, then we actually might make a little bit of money. But 
We yeah. will come to any physician's office. If they can aggregate 15 patients, we'll be there. And to put some perspective on that, 15 patients is three hours. The, uh, the test, uh, why we're, we're, we're taking pictures, because the, the, what we do at the patient location is only take pictures. All of the work is done back here at our office where we do the reading and we take about 600 measurements, but the patient doesn't have to be present for that. So all we do while the patient is present is, is we take some pictures on both sides of your neck. And so 15 patients we can get done in a three hour block. And, and if your doctor has any interest, please have them call us. Our staff, we have, I think, some of the best logistical staff on the planet. And all they got to do is call uh, CardioRisk. Uh, you can look at our website, CardioRisk.us, which will have the, the uh, phone numbers. I can give it to you. It's, uh, it, we have toll-free numbers. Uh, I, it's, I, I've been in websites where you try to write down numbers, so I won't give them that. We can probably post that later, but it's uh, 801-855-6775, 801-655. 855-6775, and but just go on the website. You can find us, and and we will. We have all of the forms that the doctors need, all of the agreements, the legal documents. There's a HIPAA agreement. All of that is handled for them. It this could not be easier for your physicians. If your physician has no interest, they just are too busy. We understand that. Uh, then call us and we can hook you up with somebody in your area. You may have to wait a while because we may not be in that area uh, in you know in, in sixty days. But uh, outside of that, we through through uh, to to this channel, we'll be posting live events. We're going to try some of these out. Uh, I think Dr. Brewer with with CardiRisk, we, we we're going to try and do some of these events. I don't know that we have a firm commitment on that, but it it just makes sense. But please don't wait because you don't know where our office is at your wherever you happen to be sitting. Uh, call our office or go on the website or we would love it if you would introduce us to your doctor and say, call these guys because we, I promise we'll take very good care of them. Actually, um, thank you, Todd. I had a little bit of a technical difficulty yep. over on my side. I can oh. no longer see you. I know you're oh, still here. I can I'm still you. here. <laughs> Um, I will, I'll share a couple of other things with, uh, again, physician viewers and with patient viewers. Todd is a supplier to, to docs for the most part. And, um, so I, I sort of drug him into a difficult area talking about direct to consumer. That's not been a part of his business model in the past. And, and as he clarified, that's, that doesn't appear to be a huge portion of his plans for the future. I think what's going to happen, frankly, is, um, as the public gets more and more aware of this and demand increases, as you pointed out, Todd, it's still going to go back to the doctor's offices anyway, because that's where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if we can get more patients pushing docs, um, can you take a look at this? On my side, I will also commit, if your doc has a, 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 some question or concern on how to interpret these, what they mean, you, uh, you know how to reach me. Uh, our viewers do. Uh, you do quite often. And I'll be uh, happy to, uh, to work with your doc on how to learn uh, to use these. Now, uh, I will say this. <clears throat> uh, back to a technical issue, Todd and I talked about uh, this video and we said, you know what, we're not going to get into the, to the uh, really technical issues. We've we got a lot of people who'd be interested, but uh, it might confuse the the issue to do that early on. 
I will say though, Todd, you and I both started getting into some uh, 3D image. <laughs> we went there anyway. We so, are what we are. We can't help it. <laughs> we, we are what we are. While we're actually, I'm going to suggest that we go back there for just a minute. And there were two other things I wanted to cover. I don't know if I have time. We, again, we may have to have to break and um, and cover uh, other topics later. But while I've got you and you're you're a hard man to get, um, I'd love to talk about uh, coronary artery calcium score, and I'd love to talk about mean max versus common IMT. How about, and, how about you? You got time? We need to even split these up into two different videos. That, that, that's okay. Let me, um, let me see. Uh, I've, I've got a slide that will make this uh, a little bit easier. Yeah, uh, here, here, we'll go back to this slide. And uh, so what I'm going to do is talk mean max first, if that's okay. Uh, okay. Because... Um, While you're picking it up, I'll give go. my version and then you can correct my errors. So one of the other things about uh, Todd's reports, and I could show them, if you, and you can show it if you've got my most recent report from April. Um, Todd routinely reports both mean max and uh, common IMT. Now, he'll explain what those means, uh, what's, what those mean. But the issue is this, a lot, of, a lot of companies, even CIMT companies, just report arterial age and tell you whether or not you've got, um, whether they see what's called a, a discrete plaque. Well, if you look at the, the literature, the science, the science would indicate that there are two different things and both independently have a significant impact on predicting your risk for heart attack and stroke. So, Todd, you want to take it from there and clean up the mess I just created? <laughs> no, I don't think it's a mess at all. Let me, uh, I've actually got some images that I think I can bring up that will add clarity to that. Let me just, uh, yeah, here we go. So, so um, let me just uh, take a second to bring those images up for you, if that's all right. And, uh, And, and if, you'll, if you'll kind of talk to me about whether these are, uh, I'm going to stop the share and change, change what I'm sharing here. If you'll tell me, uh, Ford, whether these are, um, whether you can see these or if they're big enough, because I, I the one thing I can't tell is how big they are on our, on our listener screen. Well, see, this is a problem for me. We may have to break and redo a new one because... Um, I received a phone call a few minutes ago. When I did, it pulled down everything on the screen except my image. Okay. Now it's switched out and I see nothing but your image, but I don't see your screen. Okay, so well, we'll trust that it's up there. And uh, okay. if it's not, we'll, uh, we'll redo. But uh, what I'm showing is a piece of our report, and this has been, we've, we've taken the patient name and a lot of the, you know, so that we were HIPAA compliant. But, um, so you'll see that there's several, there's actually five areas on our report that are coded green light, yellow light, or red light. Green meaning good, obviously. Yellow meaning uh, let's be cautious. And red meaning you probably need some treatment. And this is gross oversimplification. Uh, Dr. Brewer, I would never, I would always defer to a physician to treat, but as grossly oversimplified conceptually, 
we, we, we would take people that are in the yellow and probably try to manage that with lifestyle changes and people that are red may, may be candidates for pharmaceuticals. And that's, uh, for anybody listening, please, that is a gross, gross, gross oversimplification. Uh, so please don't take that and act on it. Uh, the, um, I will say as a doc, it's not as much of an oversimplification as you're saying, but. <laughs> well, uh, so th there, there, there are, there's average mean and average max region. And the way to think about the difference between these two, the average mean is uh, what we're doing is taking about 600 measurements and averaging them together. Now that may not mean much to you, but uh, think about a mountain range where there's peaks and valleys, right? And, and an average measures both the peaks and the valleys and averages them together. That's what the average mean is. So we're, we're looking at everything up and down, the, 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 the apex of the peak and, the, and the, the lowest part of the valley, we're measuring all of that together and we come up with an average mean. So that's the way to think about that. It, it, it's inclusive of peaks and valleys. The average CCA max region by contrast what it does in the same views, so three angles on the right, three angles on the left, what we're doing is taking the six thickest IMTs. So we're just measuring in a mountain range where there's lots of peaks, we take the, the tallest peak and measure it. And, and we say, and then we take all, so, so the tallest peak in this image, then the tallest peak from this image, and then the tallest peak from this image, and we average all of those together. So it's the average of the peaks, if you will. Right. Now, uh, a year a or two ago, Amy and Brad published data with, in conjunction with Johns Hopkins using our, our data. And what they found is that there's actually information, the delta between these two data points. When you, atherosclerosis is a very rough disease that undulates. And so the more, the, the further the delta or the spread between the max region and the average mean, the more atherosclerotic, the more likely they were to have atherosclerosis. And, and by contrast, when we're healing a patient, the, the smaller that delta, the, the, the less difference there is between those two, uh, the more likely they are, you are to have a healed patient. So it was evidence of, of efficacy of treatment, if you will. So those two data points are not unimportant. And uh, uh, just while I'm talking about the report, it's important to understand that only three of the values on a report have alert values. And the reason for that is the alert values are those values that have... Uh, that are tied in the literature to a, uh, a hazard risk ratio or a, an inflated risk, right? So if, right. if the value that is shown, if, if there's a, a particular number that would indicate that a patient has increased lifetime risk, then we show that in the alert value. If we put a value and it does not have an alert value, it doesn't mean it's unimportant, uh, but you know, like the arterial age, people love that number. That's great. But we would never want a physician to treat to the arterial age because that's, that's just a coefficient. There's no, there's no alert value there. And, and quite frankly, what a coefficient means for those that, that may not be familiar with that, it's just another way to say a number. So what we've done is taken the, the average mean IMT and we've plotted it on a map that, that measures epidemiologically where you should be for your age and gender. And we say, oh, well, this, this thickness looks more like somebody who's 70 than somebody who's 60. Or this looks like somebody that's more closer to a 30-year-old instead of a 50-year-old. Uh, so but it's a coefficient. We must be careful when using coefficients. Uh, is for treatment, I, I always recommend keeping our eyes focused on, on those two metrics right there. 
So Todd, could I interrupt and just uh, maybe try to put it in um, my third grade or sixth grade uh, (laughs) perception that uh, common IMT is more like just the, the average, whereas the average of all of them, Whereas uh, mean max is the average of the of the peaks. It's the you take the biggest yep. plaques and say uh, you average those out. Yep. And both of those numbers, when you look at the science, both of them those are very important. But again, when you go to a lot, of, you go to a lot of IMT providers, they don't really give you that. So Correct. again, that's one of the reasons that I came to you. Anything uh, to add to that topic? No, uh, if we talk about literature and literature searches, this is important as well because some of the protocols only take a single caliper measurement. And so their entire study is based on one caliper, one one measurement, as opposed to measuring 600 measurements. And you can appreciate that one caliper measurement is not going to be as accurate or reproducible as taking 600. And and so we, we have to always focus on, and, and, and the, the, I would say the vast majority of the early studies took three measurements on each side. So it was more akin to the, what, what we post as our max region. So it's important that we understand how the measurements were taking, taken uh, in order to understand better uh, what the true risk is. So uh, as often happens, we've got uh, more topic than we do time, but I just want to touch on one other item because I think it's, it's a critical item. Uh, a lot of people looking at this get confused and, and again, not nearly enough people, not nearly enough docs are using CIMT. Um, I think even though docs tend to be your clients, I'm sure you would say that as well. It's just not being done. Yeah. Um, it, now. Most docs, on, on the other hand, are familiar with a, with a thing called coronary calcium score. If you look at John Lorscheider's most recent video, um, he talked about uh, calcium score. One of the, uh, the questions that came, that video got a lot of attention. Um, and we knew it would because of the title. Uh, there's some clickbait component to it in that we're trying to get people's attention to get them to focus and say, there are things that you can do. Now, John and I both knew, number one, uh, let me just say this. I don't use coronary calcium score for either uh, screening or sequential. Uh, we did use sequential in that, in that case because, and you know, you were involved with it, and uh, we talked about you a little bit. Uh, the, the first cut of that uh, sequential CIMT that John had really didn't um, – it was confusing. It looked to us early on like it, it was showing more plaque than uh, than before, and he had done incredible effort and uh, made incredible impact and improvement on his scores. Lost 42 pounds, took a uh, blood sugar that was going north of uh, 300, and uh, dropped it, kept it under 100 on a regular basis. So he calmed his arteries down. Now, after our discussions with you, we were both very much relieved. Oh, okay. Like often happens in the CIMT world, you improved your your, uh, sensitivity rate. So when you do that, automatically the plaque burdens start to look bigger again. So you helped us very graciously. You went above and beyond and helped us interpret that. John was still a little bit nervous, and I was too, for obvious reasons. So we talked about... uh, coronary calcium score. Let me just tell you, uh, as many hundreds of patients as I've seen in this space, 
I've probably ordered less than half a dozen coronary calcium scores. It's just not a good tool. I, I'm one of those docs that says it's not a good tool for screening. Uh, I've had patients uh, that had absolutely normal coronary calcium scores and had a heart attack. Uh, there were a couple of patients uh, where it was interesting because of symptoms, um, we still pushed them to go ahead and uh, take a look, found huge, um, huge plaque within those coronaries. And it turns out when you look deeper, we had, uh, it appeared that they had, they were right at that edge where they had developed plaque, it was all soft plaque, and that was their problem. So again, you can have the worst scenario, that's what these two patients had, the worst scenario where you've got a lot of soft plaque, but you don't see anything on the uh, coronary calcium score. Uh, in discussions about that video, you brought up a good question about safety. I just wanted to put that um, safety discussion yeah. out there for a second as well. Uh, yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm not gonna knock uh, coronary calcium score. I think it's a good test, but I, I really think it's overused. And, and let me tell you my primary concern, we talked about this yesterday. Uh, I'm gonna share my screen again. Um, and uh, this is, uh, so I, I've got a dozen, uh, you know, half a dozen uh, studies up here and you don't, it's not important, you know, the, what, where the study is or where it was published. These are good studies. These are uh, published by the Radiological Association. And, and what I wanted to turn your attention to is uh, you'll see the amount of radiation emitted from these tests. So uh, on the top group, you see an x-ray, a chest x-ray, right? Uh, which would be in the thoracic cavity, emits about uh, 0.02 sieverts of radiation. Uh, and, and, and this is all I wanted to say. The, the average coronary calcium score, whoops, I, my, I had something blank out on me as well. Uh, the average coronary calcium score is uh, between 10 and 50 sieverts. Uh, so if you said 25, that is a thousand chest x-rays of radiation. Another, another way to put that, uh, as was in that article, and I'm, I just did a video on that. I'll, uh, um, I'm going to have to redo it based on a couple of errors I'm, I made in terms of speaking. I often say the opposite of what I actually mean. And <laughs> yeah. fortunately, John screens them for me and pointed that out. But here's the point. Um, according to that article, and this was a little bit older technology, so they're a little bit safer now. They're a little but safer they, now, yep. They gave an estimate of one in a thousand deaths uh, for uh, cancer. Or let me rephrase it. For every CAT scan that somebody took, they increased their risk of dying from cancer one in a thousand. Yeah. Lifetime that, risk. That's, that's accurate. I, actually, I've got another, I think I'm still sharing my screen. The, the real yeah. problem with that, Dr. Brewer, is that, is that, uh, you would like to think that every hospital used the same amount of radiation. And what they found in, in many, many, not just this one that I'm showing you, but in virtually every study published on radiation emissions, uh, the, 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 the range of radiation emitted was between five and 50 sieverts. I mean, that's a huge variation. Quite frankly, even five sieverts to me is unacceptable unless in all but the highest risk patients, certainly in a patient that you're considering an invasive uh, open heart surgery or you know, you're gonna crack their chest open, I, 
I don't have any problem. I think it's that's a probably a, an appropriate use, but I'm uncomfortable with just using it as a screen. I really am. I, I guess well, if somebody that had a tremendous amount of plaque found in their carotids, it, it, you know, maybe as a follow-up uh, to understand how extensive it is in their coronaries, it could make sense. I'm not going to uh, try and opine here. Uh, I mean, I think that every physician has to make uh, their own decision, but I will tell you that what is clear is the sievert emission, which is, the, is how we measure radiation, is uh, a minimum of, in, in the lowest uh, ratio that I saw in any study was a hundredfold, so the equivalent of a hundred x-rays. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, so you just have to ask yourself the question, do you want a hundred chest x-rays of radiation uh, yeah. so you get as to how bad do you want the data? And, and I think that's a fair question. But beyond that, I will tell you, there's also cases, Ford, uh, uh, and I know you're aware of this, where we find uh, disease through the coronary calcium score, and we did not find it in the carotids. No test is perfect. I would yeah. hope your listeners would understand that even the carotid IMT, it's a really, really, really good test, but it's not perfect. And no test is. Yeah, that's true. So we've covered a lot of issues. Uh, we've taken a lot of time. I think it's going to take uh, you and me a little bit of time and our computers some time to work through the uh, the data to get this video loaded. But I really appreciate your time today, Todd. My pleasure. It's always always a pleasure to, to meet with you, Ford. So. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. Mm.